Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business. Today we're going to talk about a problem that is slowly but surely creeping up on us rising sea levels. As more carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere and our planet heats, warmed waters are expanding and glaciers are melting, raising the level at which the sea meets the land. Though predictions for the extent and rate of sea level rise vary greatly, a study by Climate Central released last year estimated that a land area housing 300 million people will flood annually by 2050. Asia is the continent that will be most affected by sea level rise. China, Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines and Japan account for some 70% of the people living on land at most risk from rising waters. So what can be done to defend against sea level rise? And is there a way to stop the inundation portrayed in apocalyptic movies such as Waterworld and The Day After Tomorrow? On today's show, we welcome a climate scientist who has been studying sea level rise for more than 20 years, Professor Benjamin Horton. Professor Horton was an author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has warned the world that we have just 10 years to dramatically reduce carbon emissions or face the worst consequences of climate change. He is director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore, a research institute that studies the impacts of climate change in and around Southeast Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Benjamin Horton. Good afternoon. So I want to ask you, um, what are the implications of sea level rise that worry you the most as a scientist? And, And where, in your view, will be the hardest hit places in Asia Pacific, say, by the end of the century? Well, I think sea level rise is one of the most worrying consequences of climate change. Sea level rise, even in the smallest amount, can have devastating effects. It can cause contamination of freshwater aquifers, which influence your drinking supply, can flood agricultural fields, influencing food security. They can destroy natural ecosystems and destroy coastlines, affecting where we live, where we work, recreation and ecosystems. And sea level rise makes our storms, be they tropical cyclones or hurricanes, bigger, stronger and flooding a greater inland extent. So even the smallest amounts of sea level rise can have devastating effects. But as we look through into the 21st century, the small rates of sea level rise that we have seen in the 20th century could look like a small drop in the ocean compared to what we may expect in the 21st century. And regarding the impacts, well, Southeast Asia is in trouble. It's, and it's estimated that by the end of this century, there will be one billion people in low elevation coastal zones subject to flooding from sea level rise. And 70% of those are in Southeast Asia. And if we look at the countries that have more than 50 million or so in these low elevation coastal zones. These are China, 250 million, India, 200 million, Bangladesh, 100 million, Indonesia, 100 million, Vietnam, 80 million. The other two that are outside Asia are Egypt and Nigeria. 
So the countries that are most at threat are in Southeast Asia. The region of the world that's most at threat is Southeast Asia. So it's something here at the Earth Observatory of Singapore where we have a mission statement to try and keep Southeast Asians safer and more um, secure. Sea level is a big, big problem. Right. And in Singapore, where we're talking from, Ben, um, the perceived wisdom, the, the figure that often gets mentioned at conferences and events is that sea level rises here. Uh, sea level rise will go up by about a metre by the end of the century. But in, in research, I've seen um, many different figures. According to one study, if the world warms by four degrees Celsius, Sea levels could rise by about nine metres, submerging at 750,000 homes here. So the data is variable. What are your thoughts on how much sea level rise will, will go up here and, and how quickly? Well, both of those statements are true. It's just a, a question of time scales. When will it reach one metre with a certain temperature warming? When is it possible to reach values greater than five metres with a certain degree of warming? What we do know is that sea level will rise in the 21st century and the rate of rise will be faster than the 20th century. But sea level is a complex science. It has many processes at the global, regional and local scale. At the global scale, we need to understand, well, how much is our atmosphere going to warm? And then how is that going to be transferred into the upper layers of our ocean? Because when ocean warms up, the molecules occupy a greater volume and sea level rises. So we need to calculate that, and that will vary where you are on the planet. The second major global driver is a mass problem. So if you increase atmosphere and ocean temperature, the ice on our planet, be it in glaciers, ice caps, or ice sheets, will melt. And so we need to know how fast it will melt and what is the potential of melting, because we have huge volumes of ice on our planet. Greenland, for example, if all of Greenland was to melt, it would raise global sea levels by six metres. But it is Antarctica that we're increasingly worried about. Antarctica is colossal in size, covering a surface area greater than Australia, having a thickness of up to four kilometres. And if all of Antarctica was to melt, you'd raise global sea levels by 65 metres. So they're the global drivers. But if you want to know what's happening in, in and around Singapore, you need to know what's happening regionally. And there are regional drivers to do with how do the ocean currents transport this heat around? There are gravitational drivers based upon your distance from an ice sheet contributes to the amount of sea level rise. And then you need to know what our land is doing. Is it going up or is it sinking? So you have a lot of regional, but also local drivers, which means in a location, you can be greater or less than the global average. So if you were to ask me what I thought sea level would be like this century, what I'd turn to is a publication I wrote recently, which was to survey the sea level experts on our planet. So I surveyed 
over 100 scientists and asked them what they thought sea level would be by 2100 or 2300 if we if we didn't do anything about our emissions and they suggested that the global mean would be far greater than one meter about 1.4 meters but that by 2300 it'd be up to five meters above present and i want to ask you about um adaptation ben how well equipped are we to tackle the challenges of rising sea levels and what are the best defenses against it um so yeah i want to ask you that and, and perhaps some of the contingency plans you've heard about for coping with sea level rise well, regarding sea level rise, you can do one of three things. So first of all, you can protect, you can keep the waters out. And that involves hard engineering most commonly, and that's building seawalls, building dikes. Um, the Prime Minister of Singapore talked about polders. You can have ones that I favour, which are natural solutions to armour the coastline. That is regenerating our mangroves, our coral reefs in our temperate latitudes. It's our marshes, submerged aquatic vegetation, oyster beds. A lot of these natural solutions that protect our coastlines have many, many other benefits. So if we think about mangroves, if you regenerate or preserve our mangroves, they help the ability to protect the coastline. They act as a filter for our water. They act as a hotspot for biodiversity in the breeding grounds for many animals. But most importantly, or perhaps equally importantly, they store carbon. So they take carbon out of the atmosphere, which obviously leads to the greenhouse gas effect and global warming. They take the carbon out of the atmosphere and they store it for thousands of years. So they're the natural solutions that you have to try and protect. The second option is to accommodate, i.e. live with um, the water, to basically facilitating living with the hazards. And so you can raise up certain important infrastructure. So, for example, at Shangi Airport, the new terminal and runway, if it is eventually followed through on, has a runway height of around 5.5 metres above sea level, which means when you combine it together with waves and the tides, it can accommodate a sea level rise of around 1.5 metres. So you can see that a variety of practices around the planet are accommodating water. We can think of the canal structures in the Netherlands and in Amsterdam. We can think of this to do with the banks and levees in New Orleans, um, two prominent examples in the US and in Europe. The third aspect, and an aspect that is very worrying, is migration or retreat, which is the relocation of individuals or communities away from the hazard of sea level rise. But that is obviously a contentious issue. People like to remain at the coastline for many, many different reasons, and being told to remove because it because um, of a policy of rising sea level is, is, is a difficult one. But in certain nations, that will have to take place because it will be permanently inundated. But here in Singapore, where we have approximately a third of our land area in low elevation coastal zones, that causes what you would say is an existential threat to the future of this country. 
Now, you mentioned also, Ben, nature-based solutions. Now, I want to ask you about this because a lot of money is being pumped into nature-based solutions at the moment from corporate sustainability uh, commitments and also from governments. But we have to be very careful, don't we, about how we, how we restore these mangroves and forests, don't we? Um, perhaps I can ask you about that. Well, I think, you know, nature-based solutions are a very, um, I don't know, a very appropriate uh, solution to climate change because basically it doesn't involve any new technology where we may not know the true economic costs or environmental implications. You know, Mother Nature has a carbon cycle. CO2 has been continually emitted into the atmosphere through the biosphere, through volcanic eruptions. Indeed, the planet our planet wouldn't be able to sustain life unless we had a certain level of carbon dioxide in our planet. And that amount has been fluctuating, mainly through glacial interglacial cycles. In a glaciation, you get values of around, a unit value of around 180 parts per million. And when you get to um, um, interglacials, it rises to around 280 parts per million. Human activities has accelerated this to around 400 plus parts parts per million, the highest level that's been seen for, for millions of years. But what I'm trying to say is that the Earth has a natural equilibrium on carbon dioxide, and that's because there's a carbon cycle. The biosphere takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through the photosynthetic equation, creating energy and oxygen, and it is stored. Um, mangroves, you know, basically simply taking the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and then the dead organic matter is buried in these low oxygen, waterlogged environments, and this carbon remains stored for centuries, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years, and they are incredibly efficient. Mangroves are three to five times more efficient at storing carbon than any other forest type. In Singapore, even though we have such a small amount of mangroves, we store 1.65 million tonnes of carbon dioxide in the soils of these mangroves around Singapore. That's equivalent to around 600,000 Singaporeans' emissions in every year. But if we look at Singapore's mangroves, are about nine, we've lost around 90% of them in the last 50 years. So if we want to look for a solution for, our, for, for, um, for carbon dioxide, we've got to look at natural solutions. In Singapore, we've got to protect our forest types, in particular our mangroves. Indeed, we can think about regenerating them. And if you're going to regenerate them, you have to, it's not as simple as just planting some seedlings of some mangrove types such as rhizophora. You really need to work with scientists to create a sustainable ecosystem, an ecosystem that is able to withstand any of the environmental pressures that it is under and flourish because only when it is sustainable in the long term can it store this carbon in the long term. I want to ask you, Ben, how well you feel that Asian countries around this, this region at the moment has responded to the prospect of rising sea levels so far. Are there any countries you think have done particularly well or any that are looking particularly vulnerable? Well, I think 
And it relates to the previous point. It's all about science in a way, in that you have to do the scientific research before you start looking at adaptations or mitigations issues, because simply you are wasting time, effort and money. And regarding climate change, we haven't got that much time to make a difference. You know, it's been stated that we have 10 years to try and come to a point where we have peak CO2 emissions and thereafter we will reduce the amount of CO2 we emit to the atmosphere. So if we look at mitigation measures, well, we have the Paris Agreement that was signed in 2015. That is a very important landmark where the vast majority, apart from three countries, came together um, to sign the agreement to try and keep our temperatures below two degrees C above pre-industrial values. Because if you go over that two degrees C threshold, there are a variety of tipping points that can occur, particularly associated with biodiversity in the ice sheets. So when we think about Globally, we can see that the European Union is taking a leadership role regarding climate change. It has a variety of countries that are signed up and are making appropriate mitigation measures through changing their energy use to make sure that they meet the Paris Agreement. And the COVID pandemic, the regeneration of the economy in Europe is very much linked to a green technology. So we can look in Asia at how the Europeans are doing. We also have the Chinese have signed up, and they're another great superpower. And if we can get China, the European Union, and if the election goes the way the scientific community wants to, there's a, a survey this week in Nature where they surveyed nearly a 1,000 scientists 92% of them wanted a Biden win. And that's primarily because we know that if Trump remains in power, the Paris Agreement may fail and the implications for all of us are significant. But here in Asia, there have been changes. We've seen Korea and Japan moving forward um, with a, a green technology. We've seen information in the Straits Times, Channel News Asia, about this increased emphasis in sustainability. And here, in, if we look at specific sea level rise, well, um, the Singaporean government started the National Sea Level Programme. This was an injection of $10 million to understand the science of sea level rise before the government spends money on adaptation and mitigation. And that, I believe, is the way to go. So I would say Singapore is taking a lead here. It could really be a test bed for many aspects regarding climate change and sustainability. It could indeed create green technology jobs, which Singapore could export to Southeast Asia and beyond. Absolutely, yes. Um, agree, Ben. Singapore has amazing potential to be a green hub. If only its climate targets were a little bit tougher. That's my, that's my view. Um, I think they could be a bit more ambitious. Now, just going back to the United States. Now, you spent a, um, a, a bit of your career in um, the US. You're a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania and also at Rutgers University. I want to ask you about how worried we should be about um, the outcome of the coming elections. 
I did my PhD at the University of Durham, um, and I was a lecturer there. But then I moved to the US um, about uh, 2003, and I was there for 15 years before I came here to Singapore. Now, one of the things about the United States is that it spends more money on science. And if we think about climate science, it spends more money on climate science than all of the other countries of the world combined. So it is the number one authority on climate science and science in general through the National Science Foundation. But there is a disconnect in the United States between science and policy. It's, um, um, there's been an erosion of the, I don't know, the goodwill, the... Um, um, the respect for experts. And, and we've had a variety of occurrences, and we can see that played out with the pandemic. You can see that countries that listened to science and followed scientific advice did very well in the pandemic. But the countries that did not or dismissed science have done very, very badly. And the U.S., is an example of that. Uh, you know, it has, what is it, around 225,000 people have tragically died in because of the pandemic. And many of those lives could have been solved if the current administration of Seoul had followed the science. Now, we all hope with the pandemic that there will be a vaccine and all the information that we read and hear in the general or the scientific literature is that a, pan that a vaccine will be developed. Um, but there is no vaccine for climate change. Um, the scientists have been warning about this problem for 30 years. And if we don't do anything uh, in the next 10 years to prevent it, there is no vaccine. And why I say that is that for an ice sheet, if we go above two degrees C, above um, pre-industrial levels, so we don't meet the Paris Agreement, our ice sheets will disintegrate. And as I started this po podcast, they have huge amounts of water in it. Greenland and Antarctica combined is more than 70 metres of water within it. If we go above two degrees C, we pass a tipping point and they melt. To regrow an ice sheet takes 100 thousand years. That's why I say that there is no vaccine. So I would hope that people around the world, not just the US, listen to experts, listen to scientists. We follow the data. You know, as I was always quite insulted that people thought I had a vested interest when I did my analysis. You know, when I did my analysis, I don't get students. I mean, I have a group of undergraduates, graduates and postdocs here. I had a meeting early this morning. I don't sit down with them and say, right, OK, we need to falsify some of our data. We need to lie and show that sea level's rising. It's just what the data shows. You know, the variety of sound bites you can say, but, you know, when an iceberg melts, it doesn't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It melts, just like the virus. The virus infects someone. doesn't matter whether you follow science or you don't. It infects you. Um, you know, so I found sometimes it rather insulting in the US that my credentials, my honesty was questioned. I spent... You know, I spent 25 years studying sea level. And if, 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 if your listeners could 
um, know what I know, you would be very, very worried about our future. Um, you know, our Earth can change dramatically, very quickly um, when you pass a tipping point. And the question is, is when is that tipping point? When is it going to occur? Because we know some really interesting facts, you know, um, as I said, CO2 values. So CO2 values um, are about 450 parts per million by volume. 3.3 million years ago, um, our CO2 values were around 430 parts per million. It's about a term, it's a time period known as the Pliocene. We will reach that because we increase our amount of CO2 by about two parts per million per year. So we'll reach this 430 sometime in the next 20 or 30 years. Now in the Pliocene, we had a similar orbit around the sun as we do now, so that's analogous. And we'd have a similar CO2, so that's analogous. What were the impacts of that? Well, global mean temperature was around four degrees C warmer than today. What was the sea levels? They're about 10 to 20 meters higher. You know, that is a very, very worrying thought. Wow, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what I've got to ask you this, Ben. So what do you say to some countries or some companies that tell you, well, um, the melting of the polar ice um, opens up shipping routes in the Arctic? So from, from some perspectives, uh, melting ice is a good thing. What do you say to them? Well, it's all about placing a true um, cost on carbon or the environment. I mean, I think as we come out of the pandemic, we need to really redefine sustainability. We really need to think that we cannot keep exploiting um, our one and only planet for to make maximum commercial gain. But we need to think about truly pricing in the cost to the environment. So we can think about aspects such as comparing the cost of coal versus natural gas versus hydrogen power or renewables. Well, if you priced in um, um, the true truck cost of carbon, then renewables would be far, far cheaper. I mean, we continue to use coal. Why do we continue to use coal? Well, it's because it's very e it's very cheap. Most countries in the world have, have it. It's very easy to transport. Um, but we don't factor in the cost on our air quality and on climate change. So when you truly do that, then that provides a solution. So opening up of the sea route, yes, there, there would be a decrease in time, um, in travel time, in maritime trade, but there'll be so many other impacts on the Arctic system that we really shouldn't be thinking about this at all. So I want to ask you a bit about the future, Ben. You know, when it comes to rising sea levels, um, where do you think you'll be um, living if you could choose? Will you, for example, be running for the Scottish Highlands? Um, the problem with that, of course, is a, as a Man United fan, you'd be forced to watch Scottish football. But um, is there a place with higher elevation that you'll be looking to move to in the future? Uh, I, hey, I did, I did some of my PhD in Scotland. It's a, a beautiful place. And... Um, but not, I, I mean, you know, hey, if I really think about it, when I was growing up, I just wanted to live near Old Trafford. 
Um, that's all I wanted. I'd pick the terrace street that was within walking distance of Old Trafford, and that's where I wanted to live. Um, but that's not the case. I mean, bro my brother still lives in Manchester, and so he is actually able to walk to, to the games. I mean, but it, but hey, I do know these things. And so, you know, one, I've always, hey, everyone loves to live along the coastline. So, you know, I thought about that I would like to live in North Carolina. Um, but there are, uh, but I know where I'd like to live in North Carolina. There are areas that have been stable for several thousands of years. They have a good sediment supply, which means their beaches aren't going to erode, and they're at a high elevation. Uh, I wouldn't pick a house that was anywhere below five meters above sea level. Just like Shangi Airport. Shangi Airport has a lifetime expectancy, I don't know, out to 2,100. And so it has this elevation of around 5.5 metres. And if I was thinking of buying a house, that's the sort of um, um, information that I would use. You know, um, I, I think anything below that is is really going to be influenced by this. I hope not. I hope I hope that the countries of the world keep to the Paris Agreement, and then we will give the uh, um, the people the time to find solutions. I mean, I, I'm a positive person about climate change, despite knowing the dangers of it. I work in universities. Um, I work here at NTU that has some of the brightest minds in the world. And these young, bright minds will find the solutions to climate change, but we have to give them the time. Our generation needs to slow down the exploitation of the earth. I mean, again, if we want to take it to um, um, compare it with the, um, the, the virus, well, the virus affects old people and people who are vulnerable. The earth is 4.6 billion years old, and it's, lot, it's lost a lot of its resilience because we've exploited it. So we need to take care of it in the next decade or so to give the next generation, those smart young minds, the time to find the solution. Well, let's hope they do. Um, great place to leave it, Professor Ben Horton. Thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.